Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, updates about concussion prevention and care. In New York, like in many other states, the laws only apply to injuries suffered in the context of school-based sports. So club sports and youth sports are not covered. They are under the same mandate. Plus, a study on the effects of corporal punishment. Corporal punishment is not the most effective way to discipline our children. In fact, it has been proven over and again that it has negative effects that are lifelong. And identifying at-risk HIV AIDS patients and keeping them in treatment. In 2013, we had about 3,000 people in New York State who tested HIV positive in that year. The goal is to get that to be 750 or less. We'll have a checkup from the neck up and a poem from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll examine the long-lasting and negative consequences of corporal punishment on children. Plus, how HIV-AIDS patients are helping to curb the spread of their disease. But first, the continuing concern about sports-related concussions in children and what you need to know. All the recent attention to the hundreds and thousands of sports-related concussions in this country, ranging from high-profile NFL players with traumatic brain injury to fears of what these repeated head injuries might be doing to our children in sports like football and soccer, have parents worried. We'll hear with more on all of this and some new research findings is Dr. Brian Rieger. He's chief psychologist in the rehabilitation department of Upstate Medical University and the director of Upstate's Concussion Center. Welcome, Dr. Rieger. Thanks for coming in. Nice to be back again, Linda. So this is of such great concern to all, and basically in all 50 states, they now have sports concussion laws, and New York State is one of them, obviously. Tell us about that. What does it mean? Well, the uh, impetus for these laws really came out of uh, concerns that some kids, high school in particular, um, were experiencing adverse consequences of concussion because the concussion, concussion wasn't properly recognized or properly managed. And this led to some very high-profile um, you know, cases of adolescents with significant consequences of concussion. Injury and even death. Yes. And so um, that was really the genesis for this. Um, thankfully, you know, the vast, vast majority of concussions um, are relatively benign. They, you know, you have symptoms for a week or so and then you're good. Um, but it's really when we don't manage the concussion properly, we don't recognize that a person's had a concussion, that we increase the risk for more problems. So the laws are really aimed at mandating education for people involved with sports and like coaches, um, coaches, as well as athletic trainers, right. things like that. The, the laws vary from state to state, but the, but the fundamental principles are mandating concussion education, mandating that a player is removed from player practice if there's a suspected concussion, mandating a medical evaluation, and mandating proper medical clearance prior to the athlete returning to play. And New York has all of those aspects of uh, uh, proper concussion management embedded in its law. I will say, though, that in New York, like in many other states, the laws only apply to injuries suffered in the context of school-based sports. So club sports and youth sports are not covered. They aren't under the same mandate even though many of our children are playing uh, multiple club sports in addition to their yeah. high school sports. One would hope there would be some kind of a trickle-down phenomenon as some of the same players, parents, and even athletic trainers would be working on in the same areas. But I, I think so. I think there has been a general positive effect from the education initiatives, um, but I think uh, it, it would be nice to beef that up a little. 
Well, you've been here many times, and we've talked about this before, but just for those uh, listeners who haven't heard this before, help us kind of re, re, you know, review. What do we mean when we say concussion? What really is happening? So a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury that's caused by a blow or a jolt to the head. So you don't have to hit your head, but in most cases there is a blow to the head. The brain is floating inside the skull, so the head causes the brain to be thrown around inside the skull, and that action can disrupt the brain's functioning through neurochemical changes and through very microscopic structural injury. Now, importantly, there's really no medical test to diagnose a concussion. So there's no blood marker, there's no CT scan or MRI. When they're doing a CT scan or MRI, they're really looking for more severe injuries, skull fractures or bleeding or swelling in the brain, which would really be at best a complicated concussion and unfortunately sometimes a worse injury. But in almost all cases, the brain looks fine. There's no medical test to diagnose it. But what we know is wrong is that the brain's not working properly. And we know that because the person reports that they can't think clearly or we see that they're slurring their words or they can't stand up because their balance is off. So we're looking for a very characteristic set of signs and symptoms. And people involved with youth sports should know what those signs and symptoms are, at least the important ones. And briefly, what, what, what are they? Just very briefly. Yeah, so there are three categories, physical, cognitive, and uh, kind of emotional. So the most common physical symptoms would be headache, dizziness, nausea, blurred vision. Common cognitive symptoms would be confusion, can't concentrate, memory problems. And then emotional symptoms could be being agitated, overly or inappropriately emotional, very irritated, things like that. One point that you made about the diagnosis, as far as I understand, is that, that the CT scan really cannot show the concussion or does not show it. And in fact, there's an effort to reduce the use of these in children because of the radiation. Yes, there, there's a tremendous amount of radiation in a CT scan, the, the equivalent of um, 100 or more x-rays is my understanding. So while a CT scan uh, can be life-saving when uh, it does reveal something, there's been a big effort to only really do them when we have enough suspicion that we really need to subject a kid to that much radiation. And there are very good guidelines now for this, and, and our upstate emergency department is very familiar with those guidelines. What, tell me more about the, um, the short-term effects, though, on performance, things like the effects on academics with a concussion, or potentially some of the longer-term issues like learning disabilities that may be you know, sequelae to that, or even emotional problems. Right. So the short-term effects, you know, usually people are very focused on the physical symptoms, like those headaches I was describing. Uh, there's an inability to exercise often that so any kind of exercise or physical activity can aggravate the symptoms or even make them come back after they've gone away. Um, but uh, fewer people have an understanding or recognition of the um, cognitive symptoms and the extent to which mental activity or mental stimulation can aggravate the injured brain and sometimes perhaps prolong or complicate recovery. So we surveyed, we did a study where we surveyed parents of Pop Warner um, football and cheer, uh, uh, you know, kids participating in that, and we found that m almost all of them knew that physical activity could worsen symptoms, but less than half knew that mental activity might aggravate symptoms. So I think we still have some education to do in terms of people understanding that when their child goes to school, even if they're feeling good in the morning, maybe math class or French class will produce symptoms, aggravate symptoms, and that can cause a lot of stress and difficulty for the child. And that's, a, and that's kind of in the shorter term, but then yes. there's some research or some, some anecdotal information that suggests that longer term, if there's been um, maybe inadequate res resolution of the concussion, that there can be other emotional problems, depression, and even some um, learning problems that persist. Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting area of research. Uh, for the you know, I would say that for the vast majority of cases, we do expect a complete recovery. Where we do get concerned about more long-term problems certainly is when we have had multiple concussions, and there is some research to show that after a few concussions you know, you may start to see some problems. There are no guidelines for how to manage that, um, but we are concerned about that. 
And then certainly people who, even before the concussion, may have uh, perhaps diagnosed with ADHD or a learning disability or a psychiatric disorder already, there's some understanding from those of us who work with these patients that a concussion may aggravate those problems. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with psychologist Dr. Brian Rieger. We're talking about concussion and what's being done to try to diminish its hazardous effects. So a lot of research now is underway, and you alluded to some that you've undertaken. Tell us more about there's some kind of a major pro- uh, project going on in New York State. Well, um, there's... There's been an explosion of research into concussion in the last several years. And really, um, there's a few areas where people are looking. One is how do we better diagnose and evaluate concussion? How do we have a better idea who had a concussion and when they're better? So we can either help them to heal properly or not send them back into the fray until they're healed. There's a lot of interest in this area of better tools. And we've been fortunate here at Upstate in our concussion center to partner with a local startup company, Motion Intelligence. Um, that's a startup New York company now here at Upstate. And we've been really collaborating with them to try to develop better tools to assess balance and cognitive functioning after a concussion. And we're excited about this work and hope that it leads to improved clinical care. And who are you going to be studying? So far, we've been looking uh, primarily at athletes. We've been able to partner, for example, with SUNY Cortland. So these um, are college level. Yes, and we, we certainly have also done a little bit of work with high schools, but this is work that's ongoing. And we're trying to uh, evaluate athletes prior to their season if we can, then taking those athletes have, that have had concussions and reevaluating them and try to determine which measures seem to be most sensitive, that seem to be best capable of um, you know, giving us the information we need, and trying to develop some new measures, some measures that may detect more subtle effects than our, the measures we've been using have been able to. So I think that's crucial because so much of what you've indicated to me today and in the past is that many people have no idea they have a concussion or, or have had one, and therefore they are at greater risk in terms of continuing to engage in the activity or maybe stressing their brains too heavily, that type of thing. Absolutely. So I think that when we can have more confidence to tell a person, hey, look, you really did have a concussion, um, you know, or that, hey, we don't think you're really back to where you should be, that tells us your brain's perhaps not really ready to withstand another blow. And I want to emphasize, Linda, as I do every year, that that's really what proper concussion management is about. You know, I'm not afraid of athletes suffering concussions because in most cases they're going to get over them. But it's really about when we think someone's had a concussion, let's take it seriously, let's pull that person out of play, and let's not let them go back before the brain is healed because that's where we're going to see more serious problems. I also think your point here that needs to be underscored is it's not simply going back into play or into the circumstances that may have initiated the concussion, but also this kind of high-stress academic setting or a learning environment that may be stressing their cognitive uh, functioning. And, and that's kind of, I think that's really crucial for a lot of kids well, to understand, you, and parents. Absolutely, and as a matter of fact, we uh, just finished collecting data on a study that really validates that point, Linda. What we found in children who were having more prolonged recovery, so symptoms for weeks or months after an injury, we found that when we compared their performance on cognitive and academic measures to kids who hadn't had a concussion, we saw little differences. They did struggle a bit more, but really not a great deal. Where we really saw differences was on their reported level of academic stress. And we really see this in our clinic, where kids after a concussion, for those who still have symptoms, they can get through their day, but it just takes so much more effort and energy. And they're aware that they're struggling to do things that used to uh, be easy for them or not take as much effort. And that creates a level of stress that I believe in turn turns around and actually complicates their recovery. So when I talk to school districts, I don't just talk about trying to help them get through the coursework. I talk about let's understand that we need to help them manage the stress associated with this because many times 
that's as bad or worse than the academic effort that they have to I think that's crucial, and the work you're doing is crucial in that regard because I think it was prior to this perhaps unrecognized that whole aspect of things and how important it is to be able to find the tools to evaluate and therefore intervene in these kids' lives at the proper time. As you said, making sure they're not being overly stressed and recognizing the impact it would have on their recovery. When we started our concussion center a dozen years ago, this was really not very much in the literature, and now it's really taken hold. So that's a very good point. I agree with that. Well, so thank much you more of a focus. so much. Yeah. What, very briefly, very briefly, anything else needs to be done? Um, well, I think that there's so much research going on right now, it's hard to imagine what else could be done. I, I'm hoping that all of this over time will lead uh, to better ways to help our kids. Thank and you so much. My guest has been Dr. Brian Rieger. He's the chief psychologist in the rehabilitation department at Upstate Medical University and the director of Upstate's Concussion Center. The Long-Lasting Effects of Corporal Punishment on Children. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, we've all heard the admonition, spare the rod and spoil the child, suggesting that physical punishment, also known as corporal punishment, is a necessary strategy in raising children. But research seems to point to some negative consequences of such practices. And here with more on all of this is Dr. Megan Jacobs. She's a resident in pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Jacobs. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So let's begin by explaining what we mean by the term corporal punishment. Well, corporal punishment has a lot of definitions, and it depends on who you talk to, what research you look at. Um, One of the best definitions, I think, is by Murray Strauss, who is a professor of sociology and co-director of the Family Research Laboratory at the University of New Hampshire, who in 2000 defined corporal punishment as the use of physical force with the intent to cause physical pain but not physical injury for the purpose of correction or control of a child's behavior. This is pretty similar to what you would find from the American Academy of Pediatrics and a good understanding, I think, of what most people would think of when they think of corporal punishment. A lot of people use the term spanking or other terms such as that that really describe using kind of this physical force but not so far as to injure the child. But the interesting point here is how do you discriminate between that and abuse? In other words, you know, it seems to me that's kind of a a fuzzy line or a slippery slope? That's an excellent question and a a very good point to make. Um, And one of the reasons that we as pediatricians find corporal punishment um, to be such a a dangerous thing, it's often used in times of the most frustration by the parent. Um, It's used in times of anger. um, And there it is a very slippery slope, excuse me, um, that if you are pushing the boundaries too far, you can injure the child, right? So part of that definition of corporal punishment is that you're, you may be hitting, you may be spanking, but you're not leaving marks, you're not leaving lasting bruises. However, if you push that boundary too far, you could certainly leave lasting marks or bruises, and that would push the boundary. Exactly. Now, some places I understand, like Sweden, it's actually illegal mm-hmm. to engage in that kind of behavior. But in the U.S., is it still a common practice? It is a very common practice. Um, actually, Strauss and Stewart in 1999 did a survey of 991 American parents. They interviewed them on the phone, and they asked about slaps on the hands or, or legs, spanking on the buttocks, pinching, shaking, hitting on the buttocks with a belt or a paddle, and slapping on the face. And what they found was a 35% prevalence for infants, so that's under the age of 12 months, a 94% prevalence in ages 3 to 4, which is uh, the toddler period that a lot of people talk about, you know, the terrible twos, the toddler period where they're um, maybe the most 
active and tend to explore the most and maybe hard to control. Exactly. Um, and then the severity, so hitting with belt or paddle, that was actually greatest from ages 5 to 12, where they found a 28% prevalence. Wow. So it's pervasive. Yeah. Now, you've been studying this whole question, I know. So help us understand. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about what exactly you found in going over the research. But what role do cultural differences play? Because I know that's often brought up that we, you know, we need to be very cognizant of the cultural differences when you take a look at how families discipline their children? Mm-hmm. I think that it's often brought up, the, cult, the culture question, um, but culture encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses race, religion, um, just the household, en- environment, everything. Um, and I think that it's interesting because a lot of times I think that the race question gets brought up most prevalently. Um, you know, is there a specific ethnicity or race that um, is this is the most common in? And what the research shows is that's actually not the case, um, that it's pervasive in all ethnicities and races. Um, there's a, an interesting article document published by Jennifer Lansard. Um, it's called The Special Problem of Cultural Differences in Effects of Corporal Punishment. It was published in The Law and Contemporary Problems. Um, and what she showed was that studies vary drastically, and they often show opposite um, outcomes as far as cultural differences and cultural outcomes for corporal punishment. And the conclusion we can draw from that is that it's not just race, that there's, uh, there's something else playing a role, whether that's religion, whether that's regional differences, whether that's any of these other factors, but it's not just race. Um, and that race can't really be the main reason why people use corporal punishment. That's not the case. Um, that it's actually just pervasive in our environment. And there's been a lot of research that shows that um, societies that have social stratification, often corporal punishment is more used in those societies. And it's a way as of socially um, showing your child what that social stratification is like. It's a way of developing their knowledge of what social stratification means. Hmm. And we, we are a socially stratified country. Um, and whether that plays a role in it, I'm not really sure. But mm-hmm. it is a pervasive in our country. And it's, it's something that a lot of parents don't just deem okay. They deem as necessary to developing their child's social um, cues. Awareness, mm-hmm. knowledge. Well, it's that whole idea of spare the rod and spoil the child. That came from somewhere, and somehow the idea is that children need to be shown mm-hmm. how to behave and that some degree of physicality mm-hmm. is important. But some research that you've done, or the research that you've done in reviewing the research, mm-hmm. is that it has both short-term and long-term effects. So from the short-term effects, I mean, does it bring the desired result of stopping a certain behavior. So actually the spare the rod um, comment actually comes from Proverbs, the Mm -hmm. Bible, Mm -hmm. which is a commonly um, used phrase in corporal punishment. Um, But as far as the effects go, um, there's the immediate effects in childhood that this causes aggression, delinquent behavior, antisocial behavior, and then a poor quality of the parent-child relationship, which although all of those are very important, the parent-child relationship is essential to being able to go on with a, um, this child to develop social relationships his or herself. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a one that's often overlooked, that parents don't like using corporal punishment in general. It's not something that they enjoy doing. And oftentimes when they do this, it starts a very negative loop between them and their child. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with pediatrician Dr. Megan Jacobs. We're talking about the potentially negative consequences of corporal punishment when it comes to disciplining children. So let's get back to this whole idea. So both short-term, there may be um, a limitation. of You may be successful in stopping a behavior that you don't want. But in terms of the long-term consequences, you've just pointed out several things to think about. One is that it seems to increase the, the idea of a child thinking that it's okay to be aggressive because the very behaviors that they're being punished for are being used 
against them in a way. So it's probably confusing in some level for them to figure out when is it okay to hit and when isn't it okay to hit. And then the other critical thing that you pointed out was that it can damage or interfere with that attachment of parent to child. And that could have many more long-lasting effects, both in terms of the child's ability to attach later on in life to others or maybe their own children going forward. Mm -hmm. So what about cognitive development. So obviously physical aggression is something that teaches more physical aggression, but how does it affect the child's development from a a cognitive standpoint, their intellectual development? So there's been a lot of research that this does cognitively affect children. Um, One such study was Smith et al. in 1997. He performed a large multi-site study looking, looking at outcomes of low birth weight infants. And what they found, and it's interesting, it was specifically in girls, not in boys, but harsh discipline between the ages of 12 and 36 months was associated with an eight-point drop in their IQ score by the age of three. Um, So that was just looking at cognitive. Uh, Berlin et al. in 2009, they did a study of low-income white, African-American, and Mexican-American toddlers, and what they found was that spanking at the age of one predicted aggressive behavior by the age of two, and a lower Bailey mental index score. And that index score um, is a three-component score that includes cognitive, motor, and behavioral. So overall, it was affecting the child's development. Absolutely. I found something very interesting, too, when I was reading some of this information, that um, the use of verbal methods for discipline through explanation and reasoning, were actually providing the child with more cognitive stimulation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't only than perhaps corporal punishment would do, so that it wasn't only that you were, um, you know, uh, helping the child or not using physical means, but you were also giving the child an opportunity to learn about reasoning, negotiation, maybe some other cognitive abilities that perhaps help them overall in their yeah, development. Absolutely. How about emotional development? How do you think, it, you've alluded to that as well in terms of the issue of connecting. Right. So emotionally, um, in adulthood, this again points to aggression or antisocial behavior. So poor emotional control, um, lack of emotions when you talk about antisocial behavior, poor mental health. So the depression, the inward turning, Um, What studies have found is that they actually have internalizing behaviors like depression and anxiety, but then externalizing behaviors like aggression. So they kind of get both, um, and they get hurt at both ends. Um, And then, of of course, like you talked about earlier, is the abuse of their own children or their spouse. So it's the cycle. It's the never-ending generational pass-down of this method of hurting one another. Yeah, I also had another fact that that I thought was interesting along those same lines is this whole idea of attaching, like we talked about a child attaching to their parent or or caregiver, that is that kind of security is vital for the children's sense of well-being and the feelings of safety within and outside the boundaries of the family, Mm -hmm. and also vital in the development of conscience. Mm -hmm. So that if you impair that attachment... All of those other things can kind of fall by the wayside. Exactly. Um, So what's the bottom line? What do you take away from your review of all this research? What's the takeaway? The the bottom line for me is that corporal punishment is not the most effective way to discipline our children. Um, It, in fact, has been proven over and time and time again that it has negative effects that are lifelong and that although it's pervasive in our culture, that we really need to change those cultural views that this is okay. It's it's not okay, and it's not the right way to go about these things because there are better ways. So give us some examples of, very briefly, because we only have a little bit of time left, when we talk about alternatives, what kinds of things can a parent do? So for me, the definition of positive discipline um, is something that's nonviolent, it's solution-focused, and it's respectful to the child or learner, and it's a- appropriate for their developmental milestones. So, so I think often we forget that children may not understand what we understand. So when we're talking birth to 12 months, there's no um, time that discipline isn't appropriate, right? So during that time, all you're doing by disciplining them is actually establishing a schedule. They know when they're going to be fed. They know when they're going to um, have sleep time. And that's discipline. That's a set schedule. From one to two years, it's about child-proofing. So it's not a no environment. You're not 
constantly saying, no, you can allow them to explore. Terrible twos, that's when defiance, but it's not actually defiance. It's them trying to explore their environment. So you want to um, often teach them their emotional vocabulary so they can express that to you. Ages three to five, consistency, timeouts, praising good behavior. That is the number one and best way to discipline your children lifelong is praising the good. Thanks so much. I wish we had more time. That was excellent. And I really think it's a lot of food for thought. My guest has been Dr. Megan Jacobs. She's a pediatric resident at Upstate Medical University. And I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Happier, healthier, successier, and wetter. Well, folks, as some of you know, my goal in life is to be happier, healthier, and successier, and to share what I discover about the psychology of doing so with other like-mindeds. I had a good example of one such discovery recently. Day's end, I was in my office happily changing into my bike shorts, sunblock shirt, helmet, etc., anticipating a warm, sunny ride home. Dilly-dallied a bit with some emails and notes, etc., etc., and then a flashing boom, and it started raining. Wine, wine, but they said clear skies. Why didn't I leave earlier? I wanted a dry ride home. Luckily, I noticed my nasal complain and self-blame, got curious about turning it around, and recalled my sunburst yellow rain jacket and rain pants in my closet. Oh, yes, a plan-ahead tool for happier, healthier, successier. That'll work. Happier again and all gussied up, heading for my get-healthier ride home, I led my two-wheeled steed out the front door where I found, oof, 85 wet, steamy, sweaty steam from my shirt neck hole already degrees. Return of Godzilla, the unhappy whiner with Japanese expletives. No subtitles needed. Oh, yeah. How are you going to point this frustration energy into happier, healthier, successier Dr. Neckup? Call Pammy for a ride. Come on. Pause, pause, pause. Well, you could accept the hot, wet reality, lose the attitude, the rain pants in your shirt, put the backpack on your emaciated runner biker's naked upper body, add the slicker on top of the whole kitten caboodle, and thus still get your workout in, albeit switching goals from a dry ride home to a wet ride. Okay, hmm, happier again. So I did, and it was glorious. Coming down cats and, well, really, rhinos and elephants zipping straight into the puddles, wanting cars, wanting them to tsunami me. And then the sun burst in from behind with no let up in the precip from above. Do you remember the first sun shower you saw and felt? I rolled into my drive. A piece of pie wedge of yellow light was glowing, glittering between the house and the bushes onto the backyard grass. A thin, snaky stream was heading across the yard to Marge's house. I stood there, looked up at the clouds, and back at the sun, and felt eight years old, and yes, Dylan Thomas, happy as the grass was green. Yes, happier and healthier and successier and wetter. <laughs> Regrets? I forgot to stick out the tongue for a drop drink. I'm Dr. Rich, Puddle Kid O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next, how HIV-AIDS patients are helping to curb the spread of their disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Though it's no longer considered a death sentence, more than 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV, HIV infection, and almost one in eight are unaware of their infection. Gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, particularly young black African-American ones, are most seriously affected by HIV and are most likely to be at risk for the new infections. Efforts to continue to stop the spread of these new cases are being made. And here to tell us more about these is Kelly Flood, the Program Director for the Immune Health Services Department at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks for coming in, Kelly. Thank you. So it was once called, on, the, on this campus and in this environment, it was once called the Designated AIDS Center, and it's gotten a new name. It's now known as the Immune Health Services Center. Yes. So what exactly is your mission at this point when it comes to HIV? Well, our primary mission is still to uh, treat folks with HIV, um, but we're also providing other services, um, including PrEP, which for people who are HIV negative. Um, we're still a designated AIDS center because that's a designation given to us by the State Department of Health for Excellence in HIV Care. So that hasn't changed. Um, but the services we offer have changed and expanded, so not everyone is HIV positive. And there's still quite a stigma attached to saying HIV and AIDS, and uh, we had feedback from our patients that they weren't happy, you know, that they got mail, or that it was still referred to as a designated AIDS center, and they're happier with the new name, which encompasses, you know, what we do, and it's more appropriate for what we're doing now. So that's, that's, that explains the name change, mm -hmm. but your mission really at this point, I mean, as I said earlier, for there to be a reduction in the incidence of HIV mm -hmm. infections, mm -hmm. you need to start reaching out mm -hmm. and basically determining who those people are who may be unaware, mm -hmm. and to stop the spread of new infections. Mm -hmm. Um, we are the primary site of referral for other testing programs and for other um, departments on campus. Um, so when someone tests positive, they call us. We don't have um, we don't do testing in our in our clinic necessary. We're not open for for that, but that might be something we do. But the county department of health, the state department of health, other community agencies that do HIV testing, private physicians refer their patients to us, and our goal is to get them into care as soon as possible, and then to keep them in care. And we have a team of people who help keep people in care. But the rationale yeah. in terms of trying to keep people linked up yeah. to you who are HIV mm -hmm. positive is to prevent them from infecting other people, either knowingly or unknowingly. Right. If someone is HIV positive and they're in treatment uh, and they're taking their medications regularly, they're less likely to be able to transmit the virus to other people. Um, so the more people we have in care, the more people that have an undetectable viral load, the less likely that they'll be spreading the virus to anyone else. So you've been given a grant to do this most recently mm -hmm. to help expand your programming. Explain that and yes. tell us about it. Um, we have a grant from the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute to um, increase our efforts for linkage and retention and care and to be providing primary care for those patients as well, not just HIV specialty care. Um, we have since the beginning, provided a lot of primary care for patients, but this is going to be a more focused effort. Um, we're following some more quality benchmarks that we weren't before. Um, we're going to be able to hire additional staff uh, to um, be able to not just see people on site, but go out in the community. We're going to have peer mentors, um, and that makes a big difference to patients when they're not just coming in for a medical appointment. They know they have these other supports, and they have support in between their appointments. Has so. there been a change in the attitude toward AIDS in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years now that is no longer considered a death sentence, but rather a chronic disease? Have the attitudes in the community changed? Or you mentioned earlier that the stigma is still there. But how does that impact on behavior? Mm -hmm. Um, because there's still such a stigma around HIV, uh, people are still concerned about getting tested or they may find out their status and are afraid that their family members or the people they live with or their employer will find out, and so they don't get care. And eventually they'll become sick, and then people wind up in the hospital. And we can avoid all that if when people are tested, they get into care right away. Uh, treatment options are simpler than they were 10, 15 years ago. Um, 
uh, and it is considered a chronic illness. Um, very few people you know, that we see are actually dying of age-related complications. Um, people can live an absolutely normal lifespan. Um, but you need to know your status and, and get into care. I think you know? that is, is key because the point that I think is rather shocking to me is that you have only one in eight people who are HIV positive know it. Mm -hmm. So this idea of almost sticking your head in the sand mm -hmm. pre presents problems not only in terms of your own health going forward. As you say, they can then mm -hmm. convert to having AIDS, mm -hmm. the full AIDS, um, the immunodeficiency disease. But in addition, they could be infecting other people, as I said, unknowingly. Right. And so is, isn't there a plan now in New York State sponsored by the governor? Tell us about that. The governor has a plan to end AIDS in New York State by 2020. And what that really means is in 2013, we had about 3,000 people in New York State who were who tested HIV positive in that year. Um, the goal is to get that to be 750 or less. And statistically, that would mean the, the end of an HIV epidemic. Um, there will certainly still be people with HIV, and they'll continue to be treated. But the governor formed a task force. Um, there's a lot of um, interest, not just on the state level, but on the local level. For instance, uh, Mayor Minor has formed um, a task force um, to end the epidemic, um, and certainly the staff at Immune Health Services will be on the task force to work on that. So the you three know? components to doing that, from mm -hmm. what I gather, and a lot of the efforts that you're undertaking are to first identify the people who remain undiagnosed mm -hmm. and refer them to care, to link and retain HIV-positive individuals to care in order to maximize their viral suppression. In mm -hmm. other words, be, be, have them on medication so they're not potentially spreading the disease. And also, the third piece, and you alluded to this, is to provide them with this PrEP, PrEP. which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. Prophylaxis, mm -hmm. that's what it stands for. Great. Explain a little bit more what PrEP is. Um, and PrEP is, um, well, on the, the basic is that people take a medication called Truvada, um, and that's been shown, if you take it regularly, to be over 90% effective in, in not spreading um, HIV, um, keep you negative. Um, but people need to come in regularly for um, HIV testing and other kinds of testing to make sure that they're healthy. We don't want someone taking PrEP who might become positive and not know it, uh, you know, because that's that's another that's another problem. So, so the idea is you take it when you're negative, when right. you don't have HIV. Correct, right, so that you don't become positive. And the idea being that if you know you're going to engage in certain risky behaviors and be potentially exposing yourself to contracting HIV, mm -hmm. you would take the PrEP. Um, it, it might be that you're engaged in risky behavior. It might be that you're in a long-term relationship well. with, with someone who's HIV positive. Right. And even though the recommendation is that you still should use condoms, we know that people don't necessarily do that. So this is another tool um, that people have to prevent um, contracting HIV. So we um, see partners of patients. Um, we've gotten referrals from, from the community. Um, and so we're providing care for about 50 patients um, with PrEP right now. Um, if someone comes into the uh, ER with, you know, they had um, an unprotected sexual encounter, um, they're given essentially same medication. If you come back then a month later and a month later, then you don't need that anymore. You really need to be on PrEP. And so we, we talk to people about what their risk factor is, um, the risks and benefits of taking this medication, and um, it, it's, it's a really useful tool. If you're just mm -hmm. joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with Immune Health Services Director Kelly Flood. We're talking about the new efforts to control the spread of HIV and AIDS. So how are you going to accomplish this expanded care? I mean, what are the component pieces of it? Um, under the grant, we're hiring um, two nurses, an RN and an LPN. Uh, we're hiring um, a substance abuse counselor who's actually already on staff under another program. We're increasing her hours. Um, we have a peer mentor supervisor, and we're going to be training some uh, some of our patients to also act as peer mentors. Um, these people will provide services on site and out in the community. Um, there'll be a lot of um, 
contact with patients before, so they call and they get their first appointment, and that might be a week or two weeks from now. Um, the nurse will call them and talk to them and do an initial assessment of what the barriers are. So do you have transportation? And if not, we'll arrange transportation. Um, have you told anybody about your status yet? Do you need to bring anyone to your appointment? Do you have a place to live? If you don't have a stable place to live, then you're not coming to medical appointments and you're not taking medication. Um, do you have an income source? And we uh, have social workers on staff that can help people with this. We can also refer to community agencies as, as needed to provide services we can't provide on site. So in effect, you have just outlined what most mm -hmm. of the barriers to care could be, mm -hmm. and your job would be to link people up in a way that would overcome some of these barriers so they can mm -hmm. receive care. Yeah, correct. So um, why is removing these barriers so important? I mean, obviously, HIV is a chronic disease, mm -hmm. and they need to be able to have regular and um, comprehensive care Correct. to be able to remain free of AIDS, basically. Right. Right. And we, we don't just treat their HIV. We look at people holistically, and if they have hypertension, we treat that. If they have diabetes, we refer them to Joslin. Um, if they have cardiac risk factors, we, we address that. So it's not just the HIV. Uh, each patient has a team of of. Um, providers. So you come in and you automatically have a physician, an advanced level practitioner, either a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant and a social worker. And then on top of that, we wrap around other services depending on what the individual's needs are. We also have the mental health program on site. So we have a part-time psychiatrist and three clinical social workers, as well as a mental health case manager that also help people address barriers, and uh, keep them in care. How many patients are, will come through the immune health services um, on an annual basis? We have generally? about 1,000 patients. And those, so those people would be your ongoing caseload? Correct. And is right. there room for expansion along those lines um, under this grant? Um, there's room. For, there's room for expansion, and and actually, Dr. Reddy, our medical director, has has plans for expansion um, that some fall within this grant, and, and some are just general program expansions. You know, I'm curious about, um, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but now that um, it's that AIDS, HIV, not AIDS, but HIV slash AIDS is seen more as a chronic mm. disease state, has the attitude changed in terms of it, you know, the, the risk of infection growing because people are less apt <clears throat> to be as afraid of it? And uh, and what impact? The secondary question to that is, what impact has the ava the availability of something like prep had on that? I mean, clearly it's going to help, but the question is, is it potentially encouraging more of that kind of risky behavior? For some people, um, they might use prep in in a way that, you know, they're going to engage in risky behavior regardless, and. Our job is to not judge people on the behavior that they may be engaging in, but to give them the tools they need to keep themselves healthy and their partners healthy. So, you know, we do, along with PrEP, it's not just that medication. We, we test for other STDs. We, we do all kinds of screening um, before we give anybody a prescription um, because it might not be right for, for everyone or it might not be right for somebody now. Um, uh, so we look at each person individually and make that make that decision. We do hear some people say, "Well, I know I can take a pill, so I'm not going to worry about it," and and that's unfortunate because the consequences, uh, the health consequences to the individual, even though HIV is a chronic illness, it's still a chronic illness. And I say to people, "Would you want to have diabetes? Mm -hmm. Would you, do you want to have hypertension? Mm -hmm. you, you don't want to have HIV if you can avoid it." <clears throat> Excuse me and. Um, there are tools to help people avoid getting infected. Well, clearly, what you're doing right now is of crucial <clears throat> importance. <clears throat> excuse me, in in that goal of trying to maintain or basically eliminate the epidemic nature of, of uh, HIV/AIDS. And I applaud you for your work and thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of it with us. Thank you. My guest has been Kelly Flood. She's the program director for Immune Health Services at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric Mahan Howd is an instructional designer, educational consultant, professional musician, and a poet. Notice how he shows us a brief but devastating collage of a heroin fix, but in the final stanza finds a redemptive image from nature, perhaps to offer us another way. Here is Fix. The body succumbs when stainless steel is removed, and the hole left behind wells up red. A small puddle forms as the dope rides the stream, a horse rushing to gallop. Blood weeps around forearm, the crimson receipt for the addict's transaction, the exchange of smack for reality. In the cherry tree, the robin sings at arm's length, red breast pulsing against new snow, song billowing so close, so beautiful, so vibrant. Thank you for joining us for a HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn how an ancient type of medical practice is beating a powerful modern-day infection, plus how gifted children's intensity can lead to mislabeling and misdiagnosis, and how seniors are using lifelong learning opportunities to remain vital. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on our website. That's healthlinkonair, that's all one word, dot org. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. HealthLink on Air is directed by Amber Smith and produced by Steve Marks, with sound engineers John Miller and Gerard Roy. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.